This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we'll study the spirit of truth. Jesus leaves his peace, the true vine, greater love, hatred, and persecution. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, as we continue our walk through St. John's Gospel on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. Probably next to Joseph and his grandfather Abraham, Jacob's story is the longest one that we find in the Old Testament book of Genesis. We know a lot about him. We know about his birth. We know about how he procured his wives. We know about the journeys he took, his conflicts within his family, the visions he saw of God on two separate occasions. And we know about all of his children, his 12 sons, and his death. We have a complete biography of Jacob. Why is that story told to us? And how is this man whose life is marked by deception and favoritism still living within the promise made to his grandfather, Abraham, culminating in Jesus Christ? Joining us to talk about Old Testament patriarch Jacob, Dr. Kevin Golden, pastor of Village Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He has a PhD in biblical studies with an emphasis on the Old Testament from Concordia Seminary. Dr. Golden, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Todd. In the Old Testament, God usually refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is Jacob included in that short list? Well, that short list is really all about God's promise, the promise that he first gave to Abraham, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, but also, even more importantly, that through him, all the nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, through whom everyone is blessed as our Savior. And so that uh, same promise gets passed down to his son, Isaac, and from Isaac it gets passed on down to Jacob. So Jacob is part of that ongoing promise. Now, why doesn't it typically go beyond Jacob as far as that short little list? A big part is because Jacob is famous for having his 12 sons, and those 12 sons becoming the 12 tribes of Israel and such. And so from there, you just see the explosion of that promise with uh, Abraham's line becoming many nations and many peoples and such, but also for Jacob being uh, God's means to bring that about. We are told Jacob's birth story in quite a bit of detail. Is the manner of his birth important to understand the rest of his life? It really does, because it sets up not only his relationship with his brother, but also it really gives you an an insight into the kind of life this guy is going to live, that he is not going to be the most exemplary fellow as far as uh, how he handles others and how he treats them. So tell us the story of Jacob's birth. So Jacob is a twin. His brother Esau is in the womb with him, and their mother kind of recognizes all along the way that there is a bit of jostling and wrestling that is going on within her womb. And uh, she has a Uh, it's made clear that these two are not going to get along throughout life. It is Esau who is actually born first, and that puts him into a prominent position. The firstborn son has uh, specific rights that become rather significant in this ongoing story. And Jacob is born second. And when he is born, he is grabbing his brother's heel. And that even leads to his being given the name Jacob. That is a Hebrew verb that, that means he grabs the heel, which is a 
rather accurate because that's how he's born, grabbing his brother's heel. But it's also a euphemism. That's Hebrew euphemism for meaning that he's a bit of a trickster, that he takes advantage of other people and kind of sets the stage for this is how Jacob is even going to live his life. When it says in that account that there are two nations in his mother's womb, what exactly does that mean? So, as mentioned before, Jacob is going to be the father of 12 sons, and from that we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So, from him comes the nation of Israel. But then also Esau is going to have a nation that comes from him. That's going to be the nation of Edom. The Edomites are descended from Esau. And there's going to be a history between those two groups uh, that is where they're going to have a lot of enmity. Uh, In fact, you can go to some of the biblical prophets, and Edom is often mentioned as a great oppressor of God's people, Israel, and such. So two nations do come from those two sons, and those nations do not have a good track record from that point forward as far as being able to live peaceably with each other. Explain these two institutions that we encounter elsewhere in Scripture, but especially in Jacob's life, the institution of the birthright and of the fatherly blessing. So with Esau being the true firstborn, he is entitled to the birthright that was always given to the firstborn son, and that means the inheritance is chiefly his. This will play out in this specific account within these two brothers, because Jacob, being the trickster that he is, takes advantage of his brother. Now, this isn't truly tricking his brother. Esau knew what he was doing at the time, but he takes advantage of his brother. So as the narrative goes forth, we find out that Esau is a good hunter, whereas uh, that is not particularly Jacob's thing. But Esau goes out for, for a hunt, and he comes back, and he is absolutely famished. And so what his brother does is he takes advantage of his brother being hungry. Jacob says to Esau, hey, give me the birthright, and I'll give you this bowl of porridge. Esau, in his famished condition, accepts that arrangement and uh, fills his belly, but in the process now, that primary inheritance instead is going to go to Jacob rather than Esau. So his brother knows what he's doing. Esau is a willing participant, but he's taken advantage of Esau's weakness. That is not a very noble trait for Jacob. The other item that you mentioned is the blessing. And the firstborn son was entitled to a blessing from the father, and this one specifically also is of huge significance because of the promise that was first given to Abraham. And then Abraham hands it on to Isaac, who is the son of promise by his wife Sarah. And now out of these two sons, it is Esau who's in line to receive this blessing from his father. And here, Jacob does take advantage of his father so that he ends up receiving the blessing. And therefore, the promise that God has given originally to Abraham ends up going on to Jacob rather than Esau. So let's go back to the uh, birthright story. How exactly does Jacob procure the family's birthright? So as we mentioned just a moment ago, Esau is uh, out hunting. He is rather hungry, and as he comes back famished from that, and so therefore he uh, sees his brother, and Jacob says to him, hey, give me the birthright, let me have that, And I'm going to give you a bowl of porridge, and that is acceptable to Esau because of his situation, because he is so famished, and therefore the birthright, the primary inheritance, is given to Jacob as a result. Now, the father's blessing comes by 
deception that involves, it's a little deeper than what happens there at the pot of stew. The actual family blessing involves even Jacob's mother, too. Yes. And here you see just how, if you were going to use our terms today, how dysfunctional the family is, is that there is a lot of rivalry going on here. Esau is the favorite son to the father. Isaac loves Esau because he is a hunter. He loves how his son goes out and gets some wild game and prepares it for him, and he loves to eat that. Jacob, on the other hand, he might be a bit of a mama's boy in our terms, in that uh, he is his mother's favorite son. And they uh, concoct this plan to take advantage of and even deceive Isaac. Isaac, at this point, is blind, so he cannot see clearly one son for another. And so while Esau is out on the hunt, so he can go get some nice fresh game to serve his dad and such, they decide that they're going to deceive Isaac. And the way they do that is Esau is also known not only for being a hunter, but also for being a rather hairy fellow, whereas Jacob is fair-skinned. So they uh, take a a lamb skin and and put it upon Jacob's arms and shoulders so that he's going to feel really hairy like his brother actually is. His mother um, slaughters an animal, prepares it so that he can present it to his father so his father can eat it and such. And he's presenting himself as if he is actually Esau back from the hunt. And here is exactly what you were asking for, father. So his father feels him feels like Esau. He says, your voice sounds like Jacob, but uh, he insists, no, this is your son Esau. Look, I've got some food for you. So I got some wild game. And so he feeds his father and his father is pleased with what he's eating and such. And he becomes convinced that this truly is Esau because he even smells like Esau would smell as a hunter because after all, he's wearing this lambskin and such. And so he ends up as a result being convinced that this is Esau, he gives the family blessing, thinking it's Esau, but it's actually Jacob. And so Jacob receives this. It's all a matter of deception, both on the part of Jacob as well as his mother deceiving Isaac. We're getting a biography from Dr. Kevin Golden on the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, observed by the church on the 5th of February. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. The ancient Christians were not willing to die because they believed that you could find the ascended Jesus anywhere and everywhere. They faced down their deaths boldly because they were convinced that they had found Jesus somewhere. That's just an excerpt from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh by Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Without Flesh, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February. When we come back, how do we reconcile God's continuing promise and activity in Jacob's life with Jacob's habitual deception? Sanctifying your vocations with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you considered homeschooling your children but wondered if you have the time or the expertise? If you live in the St. Louis Metro East, check out St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. We offer a classical Lutheran education for children pre-kindergarten through 8th grade. St. Paul Lutheran School is located just off of Interstate 55 in Hamill. 
Learn more at school.stpaulhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. School.stpaulhamill.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin, remembering Old Testament patriarch Jacob. Dr. Kevin Golden is our guest. He has a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies with an emphasis on Old Testament from Concordia Seminary. Before the break, Dr. Golden, you were talking about the deception that is not just in Jacob, but really practiced by his whole family. How do you reconcile God's ongoing promise in the life of Jacob with Jacob's habitual deceptions? Yeah, and it is a good reminder that the Lord's blessing is not contingent upon our worthiness. And this is one of the great things for us to take away from this whole account, is because if God's blessing was contingent upon my worthiness, I would have no confidence at all in his blessing, because I may not have deceived my father as Jacob has, but I certainly know my sin and it's ever-present before me. But God's blessing is not contingent upon our worthiness. It's always contingent upon his trustworthiness, his honor, his good name. And so when the blessing is given, God is good for it. Now, the same blessing that originally given to Abraham gets passed on to Isaac, and now Isaac passes it on to Jacob. And so what he's actually bearing is not just a family blessing, he's bearing the very promise that has been handed on from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. And so this is why Jacob, despite the rather despicable fellow that he is, taking advantage of his brother's hunger, taking advantage of his father's blindness so that he deceives his father, nevertheless bears this great blessing because God is good for his word, despite whether we're worthy of it or not. Does that theme continue throughout the rest of Jacob's life, this God being faithful despite the deceptions and sins of his people? Yes, uh, because what happens, of course, here is that Esau finds out what his brother has done, and he's ready to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has to run for his life. When he runs for his life, he ends up going and settling down in his mother's homeland area and finds a home up there with his uncle Laban and such. And in the process, he ends up marrying the two daughters of Laban. And when the time comes that finally Laban is fed up with Jacob, notice this is an ongoing theme, people just get tired of the guy, is he makes a plan to try to now take advantage of his uncle Laban. And the idea was this, was that they had all kinds of flocks and herds, and that was really your primary commodity at that point in time. So they have a a great deal of wealth. And they know he's going to have to head out, and so they strike a deal that all of the striped animals are going to belong to Jacob, and then the others will stay with his father-in-law Laban. 
Now, Jacob thinks, oh, I've got a way to make that work out well for me. I'm going to take strips of, of, of bark and put it in the watering troughs of the animal so that when they're drinking this water that looks striped, it's going to cause their offspring to be striped and they're going to become striped themselves. And therefore, it's going to cause my wealth to grow immensely. Now, of course, that whole idea is rather ludicrous. This is not actually going to work this way that having the striped-looking water is not going to cause the animals to be that way. But this is what Jacob is thinking, and he thinks he's got a way to take advantage now of his own father-in-law. But it turns out that he ends up with all these animals, not because his plot worked, but because God's promise works even when we're not worthy of that promise. And again, this is a, a great gospel message for us to take away from the life of Jacob, is that God is the same way with us, that he's faithful to us even when our lives do not merit his faithfulness. And in all honesty, that is the reality of every one of our lives, is that we are not worthy of his faithfulness, and yet he is faithful because that's the kind of God he is. Jacob has several encounters with God himself. I'm thinking about Genesis 28 and Genesis 32. Tell us about those. So Genesis 28 is brought into um, oh, kind of familiarity because of uh, it's Jacob having a dream and he have a ladder that is connecting heaven and earth and he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it and such. And uh, he realizes that because this is happening and he's been given this dream, that the places where he is at is a holy place because God himself is encountering him here. And so he names that place Bethel, which is Hebrew for house of God. Now, there's an even greater significance to what is going on there. Bethel will play out in the history of Israel and even into the New Testament in rather significant ways. But it's even far more significant than that, because he sees the angels of God ascending and descending, and he ends up saying, surely God is in this place. This is the Bethel, the house of God. God is right here. And so Jesus himself takes hold of this in the Gospel according to St. John, when he tells his disciples, you think you've seen big things up to this point? I tell you, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. And this is Jesus' way of saying, remember what happened with Jacob back there, that God was dwelling in his midst? Well, guess where God is dwelling in your midst right now? It's in me. I am God in your midst. And so this is just one example of how Christ is the fulfillment of all that happens through those who have gone before him. Now, that's a famous episode. The other one that you mentioned is in Genesis chapter 32, where once again he has an encounter with God, and this is where he actually wrestles with God. And it's a rather phenomenal account for a lot of reasons. One of those is they wrestle all night long, and anybody who has ever been engaged in wrestling knows that it only takes a couple minutes of wrestling, and you can be rather spent. So the idea of them wrestling all night long is rather incredible. But the more incredible thing, of course, is with whom he is wrestling. He's actually wrestling with God. And that is made clear when all of this plays out that God ends up renaming him Israel. So now Jacob becomes known as Israel, and so his sons will be the 12 sons of Israel, and the 
12 tribes of Israel from them. But Israel is another Hebrew word that means he wrestles with God. And it points out with whom he was actually wrestling there was God himself. Now, how do you wrestle with God and live to tell the tale? Only by the grace of God. But it also reveals to us, again, the very character of Jacob throughout his life. Because when God gives him that name Israel, he says, you shall be called Israel, for you have wrestled with God and man and have prevailed. Now, he is always wrestling with his fellow human beings because of his character, and now he has wrestled with God, and yet why has he prevailed? Again, this gets back to God's fidelity to his promise, that Jacob, again, shows his lack of worthiness because he would strive with God himself, and yet God remains faithful to him because God always follows through on his word. So go into a little bit more of how that name Israel then becomes applied, not just to the man, but to the nation. Yeah, from that point forward, it's not only his own personal name, but it will become the name for the people who descend from him. So his 12 sons are now the 12 sons, not just of Jacob, but the 12 sons of Israel. And their lines will each become the 12 tribes of Israel. And from that point forward, God's people are regularly called Israel, which says something also about who we are as the people of God. Because it's not just the Old Testament people of God who are biologically descended from Jacob, from Israel, but also within the New Testament, this is also the name that is given to the church, that we are the Israel of God. And it says something about how we also conduct ourselves is that we are those who wrestle with God. We do that corporately as the church, but we also do that individually as well. That's a good reminder of our constant need for repentance. But also, it's a good reminder of our dependence upon God's fidelity, that he does remain faithful to us even as we wrestle with him. What are we told about Jacob's wives? You kind of walked through that father-in-law incident, but he has trouble with wives too, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And probably the first thing to be taken away from this whole account is that It is a good reminder that the Lord's establishment of marriage is to be honored, and when you don't honor it, you have all kinds of challenges. And so going to Genesis 2, how does God establish marriage? It is the union of one man and one woman, and in that culture, it was not uncommon to have more than one wife, and it never plays out well, and for good reason, because it's contrary to God's design. So what happens with Jacob is he uh, goes to Laban. He finds that uh, Laban's daughter is uh, rather fetching to him. That is Rachel. That's the, the daughter that he finds to be more desirous. There's also Leah, who is the older sister. Jacob says, okay, I will work for seven years, as Laban requests, in order to gain the hand of Rachel in marriage. And so he works for seven years, and this is kind of a a romantic little phrase that is even mentioned there, that the seven years seem to him as but a few days because of his great love for Rachel. So he ends up marrying, but now the trickster gets tricked himself. 
that Laban uh, says, yes, you're marrying Rachel, but it's actually Leah that he ends up being married to because the father says, no, I can't marry off my younger daughter before the older daughter. This doesn't sit well with Jacob, but he knows he doesn't have much recourse. So then he works another seven years in order to gain Rachel's hand in marriage as well. So now he's married to two sisters and things do not go well. Leah knows that Rachel is the favorite wife. It is apparent not only from how that whole series of weddings took place, how the two marriages uh, came about, but also just in ongoing life. Leah begins to bear sons for Jacob. Rachel, on the other hand, like other prominent women in the biblical narrative, deals with barrenness, that she's not bringing forth children, and that is a great heartache for her. And it also gives Leah a chance to exact a bit of revenge, knowing that her sister is the preferred wife. So she can hang that over her head to say, what kind of wife are you that you're not giving your husband uh, sons like I am? And it's a, a great heartache for Rachel. Eventually, Rachel will give birth to children, and among those children are going to be two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And when Joseph is born, uh, because he comes from the favorite wife, Rachel, well, he becomes the favorite son. And that will play out in the narrative regarding Joseph and his brothers as well, because his brothers will be rather rather jealous and uh, not have the best disposition towards him because they know he has that favorite status. We will take up that part of Jacob's story with Dr. Kevin Golden on the other side of the break. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We need to be able to articulate from the scriptures very simply the clarity and the confidence of the doctrine that that there is one God and that God the Father is God and God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ is God and God the Holy Spirit is God. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller talking about his presentation at the 2020 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. And we want to make that case with a simplicity that comes from the scripture and we want to consider then the beauty of what it means to worship the Holy Trinity. You can meet and hear Pastor Brian Wolfmiller making the case for the Trinity at the annual Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 12th and Saturday, June 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Pastor Wolfmiller will be joined by Dr. Robert George, Mark and Molly Hemingway, Pastor Hans Feeney, Dr. Albert Moeller, and Pastor Will Whedon. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org or by calling 618-223-8385. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Are you planning your vacation in the Orlando area? Are you thinking about retiring in Central Florida? Are you looking for a faithful Lutheran church near the theme parks? Then Zion Lutheran Church and School is the place for you. We're in Winter Garden, Florida, about 20 minutes from all the attractions. At Zion Lutheran Church and School, we believe, teach, and confess God's truth for you. Find out more on our website, zionwg.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. 
Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Lutheran Federal Credit Union now allows you to make purchases with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay using your digital wallet. Lutheran FCU serves the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod community with car and personal loans, mortgages, credit cards, checking and savings accounts. Learn more at lutheranfcu.org, lutheranfcu.org. We're remembering Old Testament Patriarch Jacob with Dr. Kevin Golden in about 10 minutes. We'll talk with Terry Mattingly about a Providence Journal story about a priest who informed his parishioners that pro-choice Catholic politicians would be denied communion. Dr. Golden, you started the story of one of Jacob's son, Joseph, before the break. What role does Joseph play in his son's story? So Joseph, because uh, he is the preferred son, his brothers, as uh, the text of Scripture tells us, decide that they want to be rid of him. They're tired of him. Uh, Joseph doesn't do the best job initially, maybe even of uh, handling this, because he has dreams about how his brothers and even his father will end up bowing down to him, and he shares that with his brothers. That doesn't help the situation at all. And so the brothers start concocting a plan. Uh, The initial plan is that they're going to kill Joseph, but instead they end up just selling him into slavery, so he gets taken down to Egypt. Now, as uh, the story of uh, Joseph moves forward, he ends up being the means by which God will save not only uh, his family, but really the the world because of a great famine that's going to come along, and it's through Joseph that God not only reveals that this is about to happen, but makes the proper preparation so that the famine doesn't wipe out an untold populace through starvation. And so Jacob, who believes his son has been dead all this time, ends up sending his, the rest of his sons down to Egypt to get grain, and that's where they encounter their long-lost brother, Joseph, who, after a period of time, reveals who he is, ends up having them bring their father back down to Egypt to be with him as well. And now Jacob is rejoicing that his son, whom he thought was dead, is actually alive. Talk then about the end of Jacob's life. So Jacob ends up down there in Egypt, as we mentioned, and it's while he is in Egypt that he dies. Now, a couple of significant things come out from that. As his days are drawing near for death, he ends up offering blessings upon each of his 12 sons, and those blessings play out in the life of the people of Israel. The one that is most prominent is the blessing that he puts upon Judah. And so Jacob blesses his son Judah, speaking of the scepter shall not depart from between his feet, describing him even as a lion. And really what this is, is it is a blessing that establishes Judah as the tribe through which the kingship is going to run. And this will end up coming to fruition within David, And while David is the initial king to come out of Judah, and then David's line uh, stays within Judah with Solomon and on down the line, but again, this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is from the tribe of Judah, and is the one uh, that the scepter never does depart from between his feet, because he reigns forever. So that's one significant thing. The other thing that is of great significance with the uh, end of Jacob's life 
is, yes, he dies while he's down there in Egypt. And what he instructs his sons to do is to preserve his remains because he knows the day is going to come when they return to the promised land. How does Jacob know that? Again, it gets back to that ongoing theme that God is always good for his word. If he promises he's going to do something, he does it. And so he had promised that the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Jacob are going to inherit the promised land. So the day's got to come you, when you guys or your descendants are going to go back to the promised land. So he tells them, preserve my remains, because when that happens, I want to be buried back in the promised land where the rest of the family is. And so when you get to the book of Exodus, that's exactly what happens. They end up taking him back, his remains back to the promised land, and that's where he's buried. And it's interesting, again, when you get to the book of Exodus and you read why God intervenes on behalf of Israel there, it's because he remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob got this right. Despite all of his shortcomings, despite everything that he did to take advantage of others, his own wrestling with God and his own self-serving actions, one thing he knew throughout all this is that God is good for his word. And he took hold of that promise, and then God acts on that same promise in the book of Exodus to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. You've mentioned this before, deception and even family favoritism are two themes in Jacob's story. What does that teach us? Well, one, repentance. We often talk in our age about dysfunctional families and such. Well, the reality, of course, is every family struggles with sin. And it's seen in different ways in different families, but a common one can be this matter of favoritism. And that is an opportunity for us to repent. But also, it's a good reminder to us that God does not look upon the outward appearance. This is more language from the narrative of David, actually, but it still applies here. That God does not look on the outward appearance, he looks upon the heart. Or God is not a respecter of persons, as it's put elsewhere. The point is this, that the things that we would look to that would prompt us to play favorites uh, within the family or otherwise, this is not what prompts God to play favorites. In fact, what does God do? As we go back to the very beginning of the whole Jacob story, by going back even to the account with Abraham, is that through this line, which is full of all sorts of sin and uh, improper actions, favoritism, and on down the line, that despite all that, God gives this promise. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through this line. Not all the families that are devoid of favoritism, because that would leave none of us. But all families are going to be blessed through this line, because through this line comes the Savior of the world. And that is what we hang our hat on, and where we rejoice is that despite our own sinful problems in our families, we still have a Savior who redeems our families. How is that promise of the Savior then directing the course of this ancient patriarch's life? Well, you can see this throughout the whole of Scripture leading up to the life of Christ, but this is ultimately what the story of Jacob is all about. It's about God preserving the line that is going to lead to the promised Messiah. So everything with Jacob, when you see how God preserves him, 
when Esau wants to kill him, and yet God preserves his life by allowing him to leave. When Laban is sick of him and wants to kill him and allows him to flee again. When Jacob comes back to the fatherland, to uh, where he was from, and he's ready for Esau to lop off his head because he knows Esau is probably still mad at him, and instead Esau receives him back warmly. There is God continuing to preserve his life. And all of that is so that from him can come Judah. The other brothers are important as well because God loves his whole people, but especially to preserve Judah. Because from Judah will eventually come Jesse, and from Jesse will come David, from David, Solomon. And following down that line from Solomon, eventually you'll have Jesus who is born of Mary. And there is why God has been working for Jacob's benefit all along so that we end up with that Messiah. Dr. Kevin Golden is pastor of Village Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He has a Ph.D. in biblical studies with an emphasis on the Old Testament from Concordia Seminary. Dr. Golden, thank you. You're very welcome. Always good to be with you. We will discuss a Providence Journal story about a priest who informed his parishioners that pro-choice Catholic politicians would be denied communion. Terry Mattingly will be our guest next. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, teaches St. Paul. But what about those who cannot hear? Can they be saved? The February issue of The Lutheran Witness illuminates this topic and others, including hearing the gospel while singing the faith, how to listen to sermons, and proclaiming the gospel in foreign lands. Come, learn how the church confesses the word in words. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org witness. Our cities are some of the greatest mission fields on the planet. But the footprint of the church is shrinking. We dare not shrink from our cities. Christ is needed now in our urban areas. From chaos, turmoil, decay, death, and destruction, Jesus brings peace, hope, resurrection, eternal life, and rebuilding. And you can help by being a hero for the city. Find out how at lcms.org citymission or on Facebook at LCMS City Mission. Every city needs a hero. Capes and helmets not required. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155. Expert Guests Expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Concordia University Chicago is committed to keeping college affordable for all, and especially for LCMS Lutherans. We have scholarships available specifically for students who are LCMS members. 
This is Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia Chicago, asking you to encourage your student to check out Concordia Chicago at cuchicago.edu. And if you are interested in supporting these scholarships, please find us online at foundation at cuchicago.edu. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, is the author of our Book of the Month for February. It's titled, Without Flesh. What does the church have to offer the world in this present darkness? Find out in Without Flesh. It's published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, Without Flesh, by Pastor Jonathan Fisk.